friends, welcome to God on Tap, which is a podcast where we focus on uh, making our way through different books of the Bible. My name is Nika Spaulding, and as always, I will be hosting this with you. And so I'm really excited to kick this off, and I have uh, tried to figure out what's the best way to start a podcast. And I think often the best way to start a podcast is to give the listeners what it is that you're going to be doing over and over again. And that's probably the best way to do a podcast, but I'm not going to do that. (laughs) Uh, In fact, we're going to do a little bit of a different kind of podcast today. And the reason why is this, is the whole point of this podcast of God on Tap is to create a resource that allows for biblical teaching out of the text and, and create it in such a way that people can take it on the go with them, whether you're in a commuting situation where you need a podcast in the car, whether your kid's down for a nap, whether you're in the carpool line. Uh, whether you're sitting in jury duty, whatever it is, we live in a digital age. We might as well take advantage of that. And the whole idea is, okay, how can we get the Bible into people's hands, aka their ears, and hopefully, of course, in their heart, which leads to greater worship and love of the Lord. That being said, when I was going through seminary and learning how to study the books of the Bible, it was beaten into my head in a very good way that the best way to start any Bible study is by doing an overview of the book that you're going to learn. And so this podcast today is going to be a little different in form and setup than the other podcasts. So I'm totally breaking the rules of what I think would be best, but that's what I do. So go with me on this. And so today we're going to look just at Amos 1.1. And that's it. We're going to just look at that first verse and use that as a launching pad into an introduction to the book of Amos. And I think by doing that, it's going to give us a greater yield on as we study the book of like, okay, I kind of know what they're talking about because I had that introduction. So hang with me, listen to this one, nerd out with me in it, and then tomorrow we will jump farther into the text of Amos and really dig into what he is trying to tell us. And so, yeah, so that's my long-winded introduction to Welcome to God on Tap. This is going to be a weird episode. Let's jump right in. Amos 1.1. Just... Chapter 1, verse 1, Amos 1, 1. Here we go. And this is what it says. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, let me read it again because it was so short and the word of God is so important. So let's make sure we catch this. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, so that first verse is actually incredibly important. And I think sometimes we have a habit of skipping over introductory material in the Bible because we have a habit of doing that in most of the books that we read today. And the reason why we're able to do it in the books that we read today is because we're very familiar with our surroundings, right? So if somebody's like, you know, I was thinking about 9-11 and I was reflecting upon that time in America, that's all the introduction you would need to know what they were referencing. Right now in America, if somebody says 9-11, people automatically think of a time on September 11th when America was attacked. It is a well understood point of reference. That's a little bit of what these prophetic writers are doing. Amos does it in his first line, and you'll see it in other books. So I'm just going to flip a couple of pages in my Bible. Like Obadiah doesn't do it. JK, haha, pretend that I didn't say that. All right, Micah starts the same way. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. You will see like Amos starts very similarly 
that Micah does. And you'll see that in other books of prophecy. And so we're not able to skip over that introductory material as quickly most of the time because we're not as familiar with the words in the world of the Bible as the people who would have been listening. So for us, that, those, that first verse, you're like, okay, a guy named Amos, he's during these guys' reigns. I don't really know who these guys are. I've never met another Uzziah and something about an earthquake. Great. Can we get to the meat? Well, yeah, we are going to get to the meat. But I think it's important that we consider why would Amos have included these words. And what the prophetic writers are doing when they start out in this way is they're trying to give you a point of reference. They're trying to give you when I'm writing and who I'm writing to. And if you know the history of Israel, those those pieces of information are actually incredibly important because it helps you to anticipate what they're going to say to them. Because during Jeroboam's reign, which is what we learn about, people at that time would have automatically been like, boo, because they knew he was a bad king. And so, well, actually, maybe the people of his day didn't know that, but we now know that it was bad. So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to push pause on verse one and say, okay, why does this matter? And we're going to take a look at all these things that Amos is telling us because he's trying to give us a picture of who he's writing to, when he's writing. And that would, if we were during reading it during his time, we would understand and be able to set the scene already for us. Just like if somebody was saying, you know, like, hey, in, in the early 2000s, you would know what that meant. Or if somebody said, you know, when when uh, President Obama was in office, you would know those, you would kind of know those things. That's what Amos is doing, is he's referencing people that's giving us a time frame of what he's talking about. So that's my long-winded way of saying we should know what's going on all around Amos and set the setting. So I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a little story all about a guy named David who became king. So let's back all the way up in Israel's history. God is supposed to be the king over the people of Israel. Okay, so God has rescued them out of Egypt. He has taken them through the wonky way all the way to Israel and given them the land of Israel by helping them clear out the Canaanites, which are all the ites in your Bible. So the Canaanites, Perizzites, Amorites, all the ites. Every time you see an ite, you can kind of assume they're probably a people group, the Hittites and others, that God helps the Canaanites clear out. He gives them the land. He sets their boundaries. He's like, you, tribe of so-and-so, you're going to live here. Because what he does is God says, okay, people of Israel, there's 12 tribes. I'm going to give each of you an allotment of land, and you're going to live in this land. God is setting their borders for them. He is such a generous God, and God's so great. So he gives them their allotments. There's 12 tribes. They've got all their land set up. And then he tells them, hey, you guys are supposed to be different. You guys are going to look all around you and you're going to see your neighbors and they're going to do really weird things. And you're going to be like, ooh, we want to do that. And he's going to be like, ooh, please don't. And he's already told them this. They know that. They've signed a covenant with him. They're in relationship. They're married, for lack of a better term. So the people of God and God are already in a relationship. They have DTR'd already. They know, hey, we're different kind of people. But as people often do, because we are born this way, uh, because of our parents, Adam and Eve, who sinned. Uh, shout out to our first parents who really didn't give us the best genes. Uh, we have a tendency to look at the other side of the fence. Like God's given us the boundaries. He's given us the rules. We've already DTR'd. Life is good. But we have a tendency to be like, oh, what are, what are the Amorites doing over there? What are they? Oh, that looks cool. Uh, maybe we can do that. And so what happens is the people were like, hey, God, like, I know that, like, you're our king and, like, you're kind of here protecting us and providing. And, like, I mean, that manna from heaven, that was, like, super dope. But would it be all right if we, like, had our own, like, real life king that we could point to? Because all of our neighbors do. 
Now remember, they've already got the greatest king on the entire planet. They've got a guy named God. He's not even a guy, but you get what I'm saying. He's got God to be their king. And God says, hey, listen, I'm your king. I don't think you want a human king. Human kings have a tendency to oppress people. They have a tendency to act wickedly. I don't have that tendency. I I don't have it even in my left pinky. And so you may want to keep me around. And they were like, no, no, no. We have really thought about this. We think we're super smart. Can we please have a king? So God has a way of giving us what it is that we continue to ask for, for good or for bad. And they, he allows them to have King Saul as their king. King Saul is a man that is after people pleasing. He is uh, very, you know, tall and what the people said would make for a great king. But he is not good king material. And so God allows him to reign for a little bit. But then God says, look, if you're going to have a king, we're going to have a line that I commit to. And I'm going to have a line of kings that I set apart. So God goes and finds a shepherd boy named David. And he makes him king. And it's really an incredible story. He goes and he meets out with Jesse. And he's like, what about this son? No. What about this son? No. What about this son? No. And we get this really cool passage. And Samuel says, man looks at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. And God was looking for a man after his own heart. A man that would choose the things of God over the things of man. And so David is established. And in an incredible, incredible moment, God makes a covenant with David and says, hey, you will reign forever. So now all of Israel, all 12 tribes have a king. And we're like, oh, it's a really pinnacle moment for Israel. It's a great moment. So the whole nation of Israel that's made up of 12 tribes has one king. And God's like, yeah, this is my guy. And somebody from his family line is going to reign forever. Y'all want to guess how quickly that turns south? If you've been paying attention to your Bible study classes, not long. Okay, so very quickly after David is appointed king, uh, David chooses the wrong path, has Uh, an encounter with Bathsheba where he takes advantage of this woman. And then from that, his sons begin to rebel against him. There's all kinds of craziness in the books of first and second Samuel. All kinds of people are vying for his throne. His house is chaotic. Um, David does repent. And so God remains with him. And we have a beautiful Psalm 51 that talks about David's broken and contrite spirit, which God receives. But just because you repent from your sin doesn't mean you escape the consequences of your sin. And so we see David's sin played out in his family. And there's all kinds of jockeying for the throne. And then and then all of a sudden Bathsheba has Solomon. And Solomon becomes the rightful heir to the throne. So we have David and then Solomon. So right now the 12 tribes are under one king still, which is good. This is what you want. But again, there's turmoil and Solomon is not, he is the wisest guy to ever live, but he's not exactly walking in the ways that you would hope a king who is trying to please Yahweh is going. And he has two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. He has, he has lots of children, but two sons in particular that we need to know about. And I know you guys are like, this is a lot of information. Yes, it is. But I think this is really important to understand what's going on in Israel's history. So recap, God's DTR'd with Israel. He's given the 12 tribes boundaries. He says, this is your area. Here's the temple in Jerusalem where you will worship, where the king will reign. By the way, I picked the king. His name is David. We have a special relationship. David has Solomon. Solomon has two sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And these two bros are like, nah, this ain't going to work for me because I think I should be king. And the other one's like, no, 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 bro. I hear you, man. But what if, let's put a pin in that idea. What if I were king? Eh, eh. And the two are like, no, this just isn't going to work. So they split the kingdom. 
And this is not good news. The kingdom was not meant to be split. The people of God are meant to be united. Brothers are supposed to live together in harmony. This is not a good thing. So there are 10 tribes in the north go off and they become what we end up calling Israel. So we end up calling those 10 tribes Israel moving forward. In the south, you have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, but we just call it Judah. And in the south is where Jerusalem is located. So the capital city where you're allowed to make sacrifices and all that is actually in the south. And this is going to come up in Amos over and over again. So Jeroboam is a bad dude. He breaks the kingdom in half. Rehoboam's not much better. And they split the kingdom in half. And moving forward through the book of First and Second Kings, you've got the north being referred to as Israel and the south being referred to as Judah. And they're going to have their own kings, their own lineage. And that's why in the books of First and Second Kings, they bounce back and forth from the north and the south, north and the south. Ultimately, you end up having 19 kings in the north, and they're all bad. They're all bad dudes. None of them are trying to please God. And the way that they could have done that is reconciled with their southern brother. Like, that, that's what they should have been doing. They should have stopped any idolatrous practices. They should have been caring for the people in their country. They should have been humble. But none of that happens. 19 kings, all bad dudes. In the south, you have 20 kings. Eight of them are good ish there's usually an asterisk next to them they're like they did all these good things but they didn't always follow 100 you know that like uh, way that humans tend to be so 19 in the north all bad 20 in the south eight are good we'll, we'll give them they're good they're all right they're all right people you'd rather be under their reign than anybody from the north we'll just say that that's what's going on when all of a sudden the prophets show up on the scene so all of a sudden we get the book of prophets and you've got the major ones like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then you've got these minor prophets and they're not minor because they're less important. They're just minor because they're, they're short on length. And they're called the book of the 12 collectively. And they harmonize with each other and they talk to each other, so to speak. Whereas like you might see an image show up in Amos that also shows up in Joel. And these prophets, the reason why they're introduced, so that going all the way back to so that long window way of saying like, what does this have to do with Amos 1.1? Well, what Amos is telling you is he's writing to Israel. Which remember now, that's the northern kingdom. He is specifically talking to the kings in the north. And then he tells us the two kings that are, that are simultaneously ruling. And what that allows us to do is narrow in on the date in which Amos is writing. So if Uzziah is on the throne in the south, and Jeroboam, the second, which I should point out, because if you remember, the first king to split the kingdom was King Jeroboam. This guy that we're going to be talking about in Amos is the second Jeroboam. Just a little fun fact for you. Um, if the first person to have your name was not a good dude and your parents go ahead and name you after him, it tends to work out in the Bible that you end up following in that guy's footsteps. So I'm just, parents, just free advice here. If you know a name that's associated with wickedness, maybe, I don't know, just some free advice. I don't have kids. I've named two pets now on my own and successfully done so. I just maybe would stay away from names that are associated with wickedness. I don't know. Free advice. Take it if you leave it. So this guy is Jeroboam the second. And he's in the north. So Uzziah in the south, Jeroboam in the north, which means that if you know when these two guys reigned, which we do, their overlap is somewhere between 760 and 750 BC. And so if you haven't taken a history class in a long time, you might have forgotten that in the BCs that are before the ADs, they count down. So 760 was farther back than 750. And so they're counting down towards zero. And then after the zero, then we count up, which is why we're in the 2019th year after the, the, the change. And so 
Um, that's what's going on here is, is we can narrow in the date. And so you ask yourself, okay, so should that date be important to me? Yeah. Cause I'll use my example before. If I said, Hey, what were you doing on September 10th before 9-11? You would know, oh, that was a day before a, a day of great destruction, right? You, you would know, Hey, this is a time before destruction. Well, Amos is writing about, let me do my math here, so 50 down to 20, so 30 to 40 years before the northern kingdom is going to be ransacked by the country of Assyria. This is, so as, so biblical scholars look back and there's kind of big dates in, in Israel's history. For the north, remember that we call Israel, they eventually get taken out in 722 BC. So Amos is writing 30 to 40 years before that time, writing a warning judgment to Israel. Turn back, turn back, turn back. And they have 30 to 40 years to figure this out. That's when Amos is writing. We have in the south, we use the date 586 BC. So they had a little bit longer to figure it out. And so when the prophets come on the scene, the big ones, the three that I mentioned, the big ones, and then the 12, what, they're gonna, what you want to know when you're approaching the Bible is you want to ask yourself, are they writing to the north or are they writing to the south? Okay, because that's going to change sort of how they write and, and what's, what the different people were doing. So because in the north, any sort of temple practice is not kosher because they're not at the temple because the temple's in the south. So when they talk about cultic worship sites, you know that already they're in the wrong. So that tells you, you want to know, are we in the north or are we in the south? And then the other question you want to know is, is this before they've been taken off by a foreign enemy while they're in exile, which is like the books of Jeremiah and others, or after the fact, which is like Malachi and I I believe, uh, anyways, Malachi for sure. And so these are the questions you want to know before, during exile or after exile, because depending on when it's happening, then you'll know what kind of message to anticipate. So for example, if I'm like, hey guys, in two months, uh, somebody's going to come in here and clean out your whole house and take all your stuff unless you repent. This is a terrible example, but we're going to go with it because I'm already committed to it. You have two months to turn back. And then in two months' time, somebody comes in, steals all your stuff, and then you're left with nothing in your house. And then, mm, let's say, I don't know, a couple months after that, you get some of your stuff back. If I was writing before that time period, I might be like, hey, guys, it's not too late. You can still have all your stuff. You just need to repent. It's not too late. So you're going to expect messages of it's not too late. Here's the wrong that you're doing. Please stop doing this wrongness and things like that. That's what you'd expect to see, which is exactly what we're going to see in the book of Amos. If they're writing during exile, you might hear messages of like, well, I know I told you. I told you so, but don't worry. God has not given up on you. Don't worry. God still loves you. Don't worry, God is faithful despite your faithlessness. And that is exactly what you see in those messages and during the exile. And if it's written after the fact, it's, hey, be faithful. There's still more to come. There's a better king that's on his way. There's a better prophet that's on its way, which is, of course, the prophet's way of telling them Jesus is coming. And so the the verse Amos 1.1 seems like it's like, okay, just kind of intro material. But really what it's trying to set the scene for us is this. Amos is going to be writing to King Jeroboam right away. If we know that the first Jeroboam was wicked, then we are going to assume the second one is probably also wicked. We also know because he's in the north and there's no good kings in the north, we should expect he's not a good dude, which is exactly what we're going to find out. 
because we know that it's under Jeroboam's reign, if we've been reading through the kings, we will know Jeroboam is actually a fairly successful king in the world standards. He has expanded the kingdom of, of Israel. So never mind that God has given them their borders. He has expanded their borders through warfare. And so they are in a time of great prosperity. And you want to know when it's hard to convince people to stop doing wrong? When they're winning. Right? It's like walking out and going, hey guys, I think a torrential downpour is going to come, but there's not a cloud in the sky. So to say, hey guys, you're going to lose your wealth and be kicked out of this land when they're in in a season of great prosperity is very difficult for them to see. So Amos is going to warn them of an impending judgment because of the iniquity that is going on in the land around them. And and you can tell history showed us his message went unheard. Like nobody really took up his message. And you can in some ways empathize with the North, I suppose, where a man is telling them, hey, guys, there's going to be a consequence for this. And they're too busy laying in their ivory beds, eating their grapes and fattening themselves on their calves that they're like, yeah, okay, bro, we're living the good life right now. So why don't you peddle your message elsewhere, which is sadly what happens here. And so, all right. And then last bit, I know this has been a long introduction, but I think it's really helpful to understand. You got the Northern Kingdom, King Jeroboam, he's a butthead. He is named after a butthead. They're all buttheads in the North. Amos is going to go up there. So this guy, Amos, who's Amos? Well, he's famous and he makes cookies. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Amos, it tells us, is a shepherd from Tekoa or a farmer from Tekoa. That town, Tekoa, is a no-name town. Why else would you know it if it's not mentioned in the Bible? He's actually from the south. So remember, there's the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Tekoa is actually a town in the south. So it's very interesting. God is going to use an outsider to go up to the north and tell them, stop it. You got to stop what you're doing. Other than what God has told us about Amos in this book, we wouldn't know him otherwise. He's a no-name dude from a no-name town. And God just does that. You know, he takes a girl, Mary, for a no-name girl from a no-name town. And he comes to her and he says, I would like for you to give birth to the son of God. I mean, what's so special about her? Uh, truly, I mean, what? What is it about Amos that allows... God to say, Amos, I would like for you to be a steward of my very message to the people of Israel. We know we don't know anything about him except what we learn from this book. And yet God has a tendency, a really good and healthy tendency to not measure the worth of people the way the world does. God picks his people. That, that's what he does. And he has a tendency to pick people from towns that don't matter. He has a tendency to pick the lowly. He has a tendency to pick the humble. He has a tendency to pick those that are not powerful and strong, which he certainly does. He does that at times. Because that's, that's God's prerogative to choose anybody he wants. But we should be encouraged by the fact that God does not overlook people. That he takes a man who is a shepherd from the south and asks him to go up and be his very mouthpiece, which is the role of a prophet. So many times people think of prophets as somebody who's just a fortune teller, someone who can look in the magic eight ball, so to speak, and look ahead. And instead, really what prophets are in the Bible are people who are the very mouthpieces of God. He chooses a no-name man from a no-name town to be the very messenger of his of his message of repentance, his accusations against Israel. And I think that's incredibly encouraging that God would do that. And so this is a lot of information. We're going to jump into Amos tomorrow, really what's going on. But so what's our so what? Okay, so Nike, great. There's a wicked king in the north. They're living in a time of prosperity. They're doing wrong among the land. And we'll get into more detail of what that wrong is. He picks a no-name man from a no-name town to go in there. And and what what should we be getting from this? 
Well, I think this. I think we have to look at the books of the prophets and be eager to find out what God has to say to us. I find that in many circles that I'm a part of, when I ask people, when was the last time you read the prophets? Uh, People tend to avoid these books. And I think part of it is because they are difficult to read. Like, I will grant that. Like, there's definitely context and backstory and cultural things going on in these books that sometimes it's difficult to understand them. But what you get in the prophets is what I just said, that these men and women, there were female prophets in the in the days of old and I think today too, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. There are men and women who God has appointed to be his very mouthpiece. And Israel stands as a negative example for us, where we're going to see that they ignore the message of Amos. But I think the bigger so what for us is, are we eager to hear the words of God? Are we eager to know what God values? Are we eager to know what God cares about? Are we eager to slow down from the hustle and bustle of our life and say, if I were to read the book of Amos and really read the book and figure out what is it that makes God mad? What is it that makes God relent of his anger? What is it that God wants to remind us of? What is it that God is so desperate for his people to know that he would grab a farmer and send him up to the city of Bethel and say, Amos, tell my people, I have something I want to tell them. I love them so much. I want to communicate with them and tell them to stop the wrong that they're doing rather than just wiping. I'm going to give them chance after chance after chance. I'm going to tell them the very things that I value, the very things that I care about, what it is to have a kingdom-minded ethic if you're going to be my people. And so my question just for us today is, is, are we eager to hear that? Do we come to the Bible with great expectation to say, okay, God, not just show me how to live, because I think the Bible can do that, but show me yourself. What is it that you care about? What is it that upsets you? What is it that gives you great joy? What is it that you would say, stop that? And would I value those words so much that I would cherish them in my heart? And so that's just what I want us to consider as we're getting ready to jump into Amos is are we eager or could we ask God to give us hearts to be eager? What it is that God would show us about himself, about his people and about his kingdom through this book? All right, friends, I know this was a lot of information dump. But I think it'll be worthwhile. Basic gist of it. Amos is a prophet from the south. He's going to go to Israel and he's going to tell a wicked king, you cannot continue on in this wickedness. And we're going to see what those wicked things were that they were doing in the days ahead as we jump into the book of Amos. All right. If nobody's told you today that they love you, I do. But way more importantly, the God of the universe loves you. Peace out, friends.